Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we meet the artist couple from Winnipeg behind a Google Doodle tribute to famed Indigenous painter Norval Morisot to mark National Indigenous Peoples Day. We find out why the price of milk is set to rise for a second time this year in September, following a decision by the Crown Corporation in charge of dairy prices, and why the hike is not as bad as some experts have predicted. We talked to a former RCMP officer and head of its financial crimes unit about why he thinks allegations made today at the commission into the mass shooting in Nova Scotia mean the current commissioner and the former public safety minister need to step down. We get advice on how teens can better protect themselves against online sextortion and extortion schemes. But first, we look into another tragic turn for a Toronto-area family who lost three young children to a drunk driver in 2015. Well, first up, though, it was a crime that shook Toronto in 2015. In September of that year, three kids, their grandfather and their grandfather, were killed by a drunk driver. The driver, Marco Muzzo, ran a stop sign while speeding, T-boning the minivan carrying six people. Two others were hurt. A toxicologist found that Muzzo was about three times over the legal limit for alcohol consumption while he was behind the wheel. Nine-year-old Daniel Neville Lake, his five-year-old brother Harrison, their two-year-old sister Millie, and 65-year-old Gary Neville were killed. The children's grandmother and great-grandmother were also badly hurt. Here is their mom, Jennifer Neville Lake, speaking to Global News in 2018. Those first few seconds, I'm like, okay, I must have the kids downstairs. And then I realize, oh, hang on a sec, this isn't, this isn't what it should be. And then the tears start. And then it's just absolutely awful. I don't want people to go away with the idea that impaired driving is even remotely okay. That, oh, well, look what happened to her. and She's fine. She's here. No, it's not like that. It's a lot of people who are doing their best to literally keep me here. That is the words of Jennifer Neville Lake speaking to Global News in 2018. Well, on Monday, Global News reported that Edward Lake, the father of the three children, who died, was found dead that day after Father's Day, that he had taken his own life. Now, Marco Muzzo pleaded guilty in 2016 to four counts of impaired driving causing death and two of impaired driving causing bodily harm. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but he was released on parole a few years back. Well, joining me now for more on this from Toronto is criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. Uh, He's also done a monologue on this this week that's very touching. I suggest you listen to it. Uh, Thanks so much for your time tonight. Ben, that's actually really nice of you to say. I didn't know that you had heard it, but this is a story, and you know, I've been doing what I've been doing for 20 years, and this is a story that, uh, since I read about it yesterday, has affected me, and I can tell you, very little affects me. I'm not sure people will take that in a good way, but very little does. I can do murders, I can do homicides, I can do uh, all sorts of very, very difficult cases where I see images and things that are so gross and so off-putting that your average listener would spit up their coffee. But this one has affected me probably more, so it's very nice of you to say you've listened to that monologue because I just had to do something last night. Yeah. What, what, what is it about this case, and perhaps listeners who don't remember all the facts of it, but what was it about the facts of this case, and certainly this latest tragic turn, that touched you so? You know, it's really interesting because if I said to you, and I'll touch upon this since you listened to what I said last night, you know, what does the name Bernardo represent in Canada? He's a a metaphor, a replacement, a synonym for the term 
notorious serial killer. I don't know how far the name Marco Muzzo reaches out west, but he is the poster child. And I'm not suggesting he's evil. I'm not suggesting he got up that morning thinking he was going to do harm the way so many of the people right now who are shooting up all the cities and, uh, you know, committing heinous crimes that uh, politicians seem to be willing to let them get away with. That's not Marco Muzzo, but that's not the point of why it affected me. This is, and again, full disclosure, because we'll make this a bit personal. I don't have children. Uh, There are probably a lot of parents listening to you right now, Ben, who take for granted that their babies, depending on the time zone you're in in Canada right now, are in their room sleeping, or maybe watching TV, or even worse, on their iPad. Maybe they're outside playing. And these people who are listening to us right now, Ben, take it for granted that their kids will be there tomorrow. And in the blink of an eye, the son of a billionaire, seven years ago, got off a private jet from a bachelor party in Las Vegas, again, the son of a billionaire who could have afforded a helicopter to get back to his house, an Uber, a limousine, three Hummers, uh, two Teslas, you can fill in the blank, but decided to get into his souped-up Grand Cherokee, and as you mentioned, driving three times over the legal limit, plowed into a family, wiped the three babies off the face of the earth, wiped the grandfather off the face of the earth, and badly, badly hurt two other people in the car. And Edward... Lake and Jennifer Neville Lake, who you just played another one of her heart-shattering uh, quotes, and I can tell you I covered the Muzzo trial in my uh, media job for television from the day it started till the day it ended. Jennifer Neville Lake and Edward Lake were left to be at home together without their babies. Now, again, Ben, mindful of time and not meaning for this to be a monologue, mm-hmm. think through all the couples you know, that you, Ben O'Hearn, know, who have their children, They don't get along that well. They're on the precipice of separation or divorce. Maybe they have good days or bad. But the marriage is there. The relationship is there. The kids are in the other room. Now imagine you have to spend the rest of your life together knowing that your babies have been wiped off the face of the earth by a man who was paroled after a third of his sentence, a little longer because he screwed up and gave stupid answers at his parole hearing. He was probably out for dinner on Monday night at a very nice, expensive restaurant while Edward Blake's body was being discovered after killing himself on Father's Day or just after. And now you have Jennifer Neville Lake, who was made alone by Marco Muzzo. And in my view, Marco Muzzo, in many ways, Ben, and again, we don't have time to get into the philosophy of it, he took another life Sunday night. Now, he didn't intend to do it. I'm not saying he's evil. But another life was taken on Sunday night. And as Canadians, where I think we've lost the thread on what it means to be a victim, what it means to be a survivor, what it means to go through trauma and PTSD, where those words are spread on things like ketchup. I appreciate some people may be offended by that. I don't care. This is a family that for seven years, their family was taken from them. They had to live in a house that can only be described, I am sure, as quite horrible and empty without their babies. And now comes Sunday night, Ben. Rather than killing Marco Muzzo or going after the person who did it, which is really a credit and a testament to Edward Lake that he didn't take his violence outward. He didn't take it out to the streets, out for justice, out for vengeance, out for an eye for an eye. He put himself in a position where very sadly and tragically, 
he wanted to go see his three children where they're perhaps living right now, if you believe in that sort of thing. And I think then, in a day and age where we've lost the thread of so much of what it means to be Canadian and so much of what it means to care about each other, this scourge of impaired driving and dangerous driving and this insanity that continues, that is not going down, that is not getting better, the fact that Edward Lake did this, to answer your question, and I'm sorry I've gone on, you know I'm usually on your show and I do 90 seconds or 60 second answers. This is one that I have trouble making sense of, and I've had to make sense of a lot of things in my life. No, I was I listened to the monologue, and I know how much it touched you, and I thought it was important to talk about it. I mean, there, there are some criminal issues here that we could talk about. I know that when he was sentenced, it was one of the harshest sentences possible for a first-time offender, 10 years. In this case, he was, in fact, a first-time offender. But it feels like something fell apart here, and I guess what we're left with is just how devastating uh, these tragedies are for the families long after we've... You know, many of us have moved on and started talking about other things. You know, it's very true, and I don't know when you want to get to break, but one of the things from the criminal standpoint here that really bothers me, and maybe I'm the only one, I appreciate I'm a criminal defense lawyer, and a lot of things I say don't please a lot of people, but again, I really couldn't care less, is that Marco Muzzo has become the person associated with this. Edward Lake is gone because of Marco Muzzo. But Marco Muzzo did that day what thousands of Canadians do on a weekly or monthly basis. The only difference, Ben, is that the people not named Marco Muzzo, the people named Joe Smith, Jane Smith, and Moose Jaw, and Vancouver, Montreal, Halifax, Fredericton, the only difference between them and Marco Muzzo driving two and a half to three times over the legal limit, and by the way, urinating in their pants, they're so drunk, is that they make it home. They get to a ride spot check and then they pay a $1,200 fine or they hit a mailbox or they smash their own fender. But almost every drunk driver who hits another car, Ben, and I'm telling you, it's almost insane if you look this up. They're the ones who walk out unscathed without so much as a scratch or a broken bone when they plow into other human beings. And this problem isn't getting better. And my view of the criminal justice system, which on many occasions, I very openly call a criminal injustice system. Until we stop only punishing people who do this frequent, regular, often dime a dozen crime, until we stop punishing only the ones that hit somebody else or kill them or smash into them or leave them in a wheelchair, in my view, and again, I know there's a devil's advocate to this, people can disagree, I don't care. Until the criminal justice system deals with the person who gets caught, who's lucky enough to not hit anybody, that $1,200 fine, then even though it raises a whole, does deterrence work? Will it change anything? Maybe it doesn't. On the weekends that Marco Muzzo was in court, Ben, you'd find it fascinating that impaired driving went up in York Region, just outside of Toronto, that. not down. You'd think it would have a chilling effect. Ari, but until hold that thought. We stop hold that thought. We'll come, take this seriously, we'll come right it's back. A problem. Yeah, we'll come right back. Ari Goldkind speaking to us tonight from Toronto. Uh, we'll be back. Speaking this half hour with criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind from Toronto, we've been talking about uh, the death by suicide of the father of three children who were killed in a horrific drunk driving incident um, in Toronto back in 2015, uh, and the fact that uh, just the lingering effects of those incredible heart-wrenching tragedies on the families afterwards. Ari, before we, we went to break, you were talking just about how we need to 
to take drunk driving seriously. I mean, I was I was shocked to see that there's still on average about 10 federal criminal charges and provincial short term license suspensions an hour in this country for alcohol and drug impaired driving. Given all that we know, it feels like we've plateaued in terms of just how much we can educate people to stop this. And Ben, you're exactly right. And, you know, I'm sorry for running long into the break, but this, you know, I, I do media hits and talk about every case on the planet every day, and it doesn't affect me for a second. I do it with my eyes closed, but there's just something about the fact that I keep picturing what Edward Lake did, and he's going to die in vain. That's what also hurts me a little bit, Ben. And I don't know these people. I don't want anybody out there to think I know them. I've met them. I, I know no more about them than your listeners who have followed the story. I mean, I followed the trial and everything, but this just affects me. There's just something about it in a world, as I said, that I think is becoming increasingly stupid, increasingly cruel, increasingly using words to twist words into things they don't mean anymore. I gave examples earlier. Here we have a man that will now be six feet under. And as you mentioned, and you make the point very elegantly, this isn't making any difference. It's not stopping anybody in a country where there's very few excuses to not have an Uber, a cab, if you can afford to. I mean, I've heard people say, well, I live in a small town, so I can't afford a cab. Okay, that to me, that answer is probably worth two years in jail just for being stupid. And what I was saying before the break is that the way our system works, and I don't think a lot of Canadians know this because most Canadians would never dream of doing this, is we have to stop just throwing the book at the people who do it. As you and I were in break, Ben, there's an officer who killed, there's a man who killed an officer in your province, in Victoria, B.C., that got five years for mowing an officer down. Now, that's fine and dandy, but what happens if you don't mow somebody down? There's only one jurisdiction that I'm aware of in Ontario that says, we don't care that you're a first-time offender. We don't care that this is the first time you've been in trouble. You know, not every criminal, then has to be somebody with a rap sheet as long as your leg. There really is no more excuse for this, but it continues. It persists. And as I said, what bothers me is that all of the pain and trauma, real trauma, not the way it's used on Twitter, which I call anti-social media, that this family, the Neville Lakes, have been through, Ben, it is so tragic. I don't think it will change anything. And as I said in my monologue, to me, you know, this is, we have a prime minister who would go to the opening of a door if he thought it would get him votes. My feeling is, is that he and Doug Ford, the premier of Ontario, should be at Jennifer Neville Lake's door tomorrow morning saying, what can we, as the leaders of our province and our country respectively, what can we do to help you? Whatever you need, whatever support, this is such a Canadian story. And I think it's one that's extremely tragic. And I'll end this because I know we have to go. Edward Lake could have turned all his vengeance outward and become violent or gone after Muzzo, the person who did this to him and his family. But instead, he took it all into himself for seven years. And there, but for the grace of you-know-who, go each and every one of us listening tonight. And I can't imagine a more tragic, sad story. And I just feel it very deeply. And I don't know that I can elegantly explain why better than that. Eric Goldkind, I think you've explained it perfectly. Thank you so much for that. I guess listeners may be surprised to know that Marco Muzzo will likely drive again. He has 12 years, a 12-year ban, but he will likely be back behind a wheel one day. Uh, Eric Goldkind, thank you so much for your time tonight. Great to be with you, Ben. 
I'm a big fan of those Google Doodles. I usually click on them. There's always good ones. They tend to do a really good job with them. Um, and usually when you click through, there's something interesting to find. Generally, you know what it's about, but not always. Today, when I uh, went to Google, I was really impressed to see something that looked a lot like a Norvell Morisot painting. Um, because it is, it was, or it was a tribute to uh, Norvell Morisot, in fact. That was today's Google Doodle in recognition of National Indigenous Peoples Day. So I was wondering, well, who did it? Well, it turns out it's an artist couple from Winnipeg. Um, again, doodles are those uh, changes that are made to the Google logo to celebrate occasions and famous people. Again, today's in honor of National Indigenous Peoples Day is uh, one of Canadian Indigenous artists, Norvell Norvell Morisot called the Picasso of the North, also known as Copper Thunderbird. Uh, the work is a tribute by a Winnipeg couple, Blake Antikoneb and Daniel Morrison. And uh, I caught up with them today. They're actually on a road trip with their three-month-old. Uh, but I really wanted to speak to them. And they agreed. And Danielle Morrison uh, joins me now. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. So just the inspiration behind this, uh, it's such a beautiful design. It was such a, a joy to, you know, I Google a lot given my job. So there it was. There, there was your <laughs> yeah, work. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what was it like to see it and what was the inspiration behind it? Um, well, I mean, seeing it was pretty amazing. Google is one of the most used search engines in the world. And we, Blake and I knew that it was going to be seen by millions of people and we actually ended up staying up till about midnight last night just to see it launch. And it was really cool. Like we worked really hard on this piece of artwork over the last month and it was, you know, done in a really quick turnaround time. Um, yeah, it was just amazing. So just tell me about the inspiration itself. Cause I know that, uh, that Norval Moriso was an inspiration to both of you. Yeah. I mean, it's really special because Norval's family and the estate of Norval Moriso reached out to us, uh, to Blake specifically because they were familiar with his work and they had thought of all these indigenous artists that could potentially do a piece to honor Norvell's legacy in his life. And I, I think what really struck them the most was his ability to mix Woodland's School of Art with modern uh, contemporary pop culture references. And it's very similar in the way that uh, Norvell broke a lot of stereotypes um, and he sort of just, you know, steps outside of the box and broke tradition um, at the time, Norvell's work was considered very taboo and, you know, talking about ceremony and paintings and uh, talking about spirituality at that time um, wasn't very widely accepted. And I know that Blake has received some very similar criticisms. Um, so I think just, you know, his journey as an artist really speaks to Blake, especially. And for me, I... I grew up in Kenora. I was familiar with Norvell's work. Um, our family actually has the same last name before my, my grandfather went to residential school. His name was changed from Morso to Morrison. And I ended up pursuing a fine arts degree. There weren't a lot of Indigenous artists that I could look up to at the time. But I was familiar with Norvell's work and I was just really inspired. How did you, how did it come about? How did, how does Google approach someone for an idea like this? 
So Google reached out to the estate of Norvell Morso. They wanted to honor an Indigenous individual, an Indigenous artist. And Norvell is considered uh, as the Picasso in the North. It's been referred to that many, many times. Um, similar to Picasso, like I said, Norvell just broke so many traditions and really revolutionized um, the art world with something that a lot of people had never seen before, especially with his references to culture, the way that he used colors, you know, the really high contrast. It's almost like abstract use of um, line work. I, I think, you know, Norvell is an undervalued a great artist that a lot of people in Canada just don't really know a lot about. And I think using his legacy and his life and his, his portrait uh, as a Google Doodle is just a great way to celebrate Indigenous people in Canada. Was it a tough concept to come up with? I mean, those are some very, very big shoes to fill, even as a, even <laughs> as a, even as a tribute. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, yes, for sure. We, we did come up with a few different concepts. Um, you know, we take turns sort of um, spinning off of each other's ideas and doing different color concepts. And then what we finally um, decided on was to use some very traditional color palettes that Morso had used in his earlier works um, and to also put in a nice portrait of Norvell. And, you know, you'll notice that there's some really beautiful florals around um, sort of the abstract Google logo. And that was, you know, very reminiscent of his work with references to florals because they were really organic. Like most florals that you'll see in Anishinaabe art or beadwork, for example, which is what I'm really inspired by is very symmetrical. And so uh, for me, it was kind of stepping out of my comfort zone and, and just sort of being a little more free spirited with my artwork. And I was really trying to channel Norvell. So yes, it was difficult, but I found it to be, I mean, both of us wanted to do a very rewarding process. I mean, it is today is National Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, when you click on your Google design, it takes you right to a biography of Norvell. Uh, why was it important, do you think, to, to, to get word of him out today? Well, Norvell's story as a person, I think, resonates with a lot of Anishinaabe people, especially because his life was so impacted by colonialism and the legacy of residential schools. And his life story... Uh, is very similar to a lot of people in my own community and Blake's community where we see people that were faced with so much adversity in their life and yet they were able to overcome that and achieve such great things. And Norvell is just one of those people. Um, I think it's really important to highlight the successes of Indigenous people on a day like this as much as it is important to recognize that there is a lot of uh, trauma and ongoing trauma that our communities are still dealing with. Um, there was a woman that was speaking at a event in Tomogamy First Nation, which is where Blake's uh, maternal family is from. And she said that people have to recognize that we come with a lot of intergenerational trauma, but at the same time, we have intergenerational resilience. And I thought that was a very beautiful quote. That was from uh, Crystal Samaganis. I guess as a last word, what would you like people? I mean, often people Google and they look up and they see something and, and maybe or maybe they do, maybe they don't click through to see what it's about. What would you like people who've seen that image today to know about where it came from and what the spirit behind it is? I would like people to know um, how beautiful Indigenous people are and how um, 
versatile, how uh, well-rounded, I guess we are as people. I mean, there's a lot of aspects of Norvell that people didn't know about him because, you know, he hit mainstream and I think his life just sort of like skyrocketed from there. But uh, I thought it was very fitting that, you know, we did this portrait to honor Norvell, who was also bisexual. And it happens to land during June, which is also Pride Month. We have a lot of LGBTQ2S uh, individuals in our communities who I don't think get enough recognition and honor, um, you know, within our own community and within mainstream society. And I, I hope that people, when they're learning about Norvell, come to practice some of his own teachings, which were to look beyond things like gender and race and sexuality and religion. Uh, I mean, he just really believed in transcending all of those in order to recognize that we're all interconnected. We're all spiritual beings. And I guess if you stayed up to midnight, were you happy with what you saw when it, when it went live? <laughs> yeah, for sure. It looks amazing. Like, I mean, we got to look at it in, uh, in dark mode and light mode. And then you see uh, Google did a few different other smaller renditions. So you can see a bit of the artwork uh, up in the upper left corner when you get your search results. Like, it's just amazing what they do with that. And then, of course, if you click through the Google Doodle, you'll see that there's the blog and then the questions and answers that Blake and I did together. Uh, and that's in the archives. It's, it's going to be there forever, which is amazing. Well, Danielle Morrison, uh, thank you and congratulations. Uh, quite the achievement. Thanks so much. Well, the Canadian Dairy Commission has approved a rare second milk price increase for this year. That's the bad news. The good news is that it's not quite as high as many had expected. So the Crown Corporation, which oversees Canada's dairy supply management system, says farm gate milk prices will go up by two cents per liter or 2.5% on September the 1st. Now, keep in mind that increase comes after milk prices rose six cents per liter or roughly 8.4% just on February the 1st. So what does this all mean? Why could it have been worse? And are there more price hikes to come anytime soon? Joining me now is Sylvain Charlebois. He's a professor in food distribution and policy in the faculties of management and agriculture at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Professor Charlebois, thank you for your time tonight. My pleasure. So uh, another price increase in milk. It's not going to make uh, anyone, it's not going to make life any easier for anyone, but not as bad as perhaps it could have been. What, what did we find out today? Yeah, so for this second increase, uh, unfortunately, it'll be implemented on September 1st when kids go back to school uh, and demand for fluid milk, as you know, goes up. Uh, so it's ill time. However, most observers were expecting a much higher uh, hike. Uh, so at 2.5%, I would say it could have been worse. And uh, when you look at how the commission took some time to communicate this to the public. Uh, it wasn't on a Friday night. Uh, it wasn't a 200-word memo posted on their website with no details, uh, basically suggesting that uh, that milk prices are going to go up in September or in February. Last fall was very much uh, a, a very um, – uh, it was unacceptable, really. Communications weren't there at all. This time around, they, they took the time to write a memo in English and French. Uh, they actually have a FAQ sheet as well for people wondering how uh, the commission actually works and all that. So you can feel that they, they actually made an effort to allow Canadians to understand what was going on. 
Well, they must be under pressure, right? They must be under pressure to be more transparent with this, because if there is indeed, as we were seeing, another price increase, the second in a year, um, consumers are going to want to know why. So there was the mandate letter posted uh, on their website yesterday, which really came as a surprise. And I think it kind of set the tone to today's announcement, to be honest. I, I think a lot of people made phone calls over the weekend, uh, you know, uh, reminding commissioners uh, who they represent, what their roles are and things like that. And, and of course, as, as you know, uh, we only have two commissioners uh, at the CDC, and both of them are linked to the dairy industry. So they're they're seen as biased, uh, but it is a crown corporation, and it should be there to serve, yes, dairy farmers, but most importantly, the came public. So what exactly has happened, and why have they agreed to a second price increase in a year, which I gather is not common practice? It's not common practice. I would say over the last uh, 50 years, I think it may have happened three or four times. Uh, so when I heard that they were looking at a second increase, I wasn't overly surprised, but I also was very concerned because uh, of the opacity of the process. Uh, where are they going to get their data to justify an increase? And I was honestly expecting a, a much higher increase today. And I was very concerned for Canadians, consumers, uh, and, and everyone is is really overly burdened by what's happening in the marketplace. Uh, no matter where you look, things are more expensive. Everything is more expensive. So the last thing you want is supply management not to serve the burdened consumer well in Canada. That's why we have supply management to stabilize prices, to stabilize supplies. And so it's not, not the one message you wanted to send. But honestly, today, again, uh, it's, so, it's sort of a bad news, good news story. Uh, the bad news, of course, prices are going to go up again in the fall, but it could have been worse. 2.5% though is still something that's going to be felt if people are already struggling to afford uh, the essentials. So it means it's the, over yeah. 10% for the for the 12 months. So it's yeah. still quite substantial for sure. Yeah. How will that be seen? How will that be felt across uh, across the spectrum of both uh, individual grocery shopping, restaurants? Uh, I know, I mean, dairy products are used absolutely everywhere, right? Yeah. So uh, of course, uh, for, for, for consumers, the 2.5% may actually look more like a 3, 3.5% at retail, depending where you live. Um, and uh, for dairy products, of course, uh, there's more pro processing required. Uh, and uh, you're expect we're expecting higher prices. Uh, it's always hard to, to predict what could happen in the dairy section, but we are expecting prices to go up even more. And they have been up uh, since January. Uh, on average, dairy products have been up 7 to 8% since January. So it's you can feel that the, the increase that, that uh, was implemented in February is really impacting uh, food affordability in that section of the grocery store. You pointed out that alternatives that are always that were traditionally much more expensive, at least in my memory, oat milk, almond milk, those sorts of things are actually now relatively similar to some extent. And that drinking milk has become something of a luxury, or at least it's headed that way. Yeah. So the, the liquid analogs are actually 
cheap now compared to regular milk. Uh, so we have reached, because of, of what happened in February, we have reached parity. And, and of course, this increase coming this fall will actually expand that gap between fluid milk and and uh, and fluid analogs essentially so it's going to be interesting to see what consumers do uh, are they going to keep on buying fluid milk or are they going to go somewhere else and and that somewhere else is actually becoming more and more financially attractive uh, for for listeners who who may not know or may have forgotten or may just not have understood i mean which is common how does the the supply you know the, how does the system work and and how is it supposed to work for consumers and is it so so you have the quota system uh, managed by provinces uh so the quota system basically is based on how much milk we need as a country so each province will actually allocate quotas based on on demand the cdc's role at the federal level is to set prices at farm gate and so farmers are compensated based on that calculation on that pricing flow and managed by the federal agency and of course you have tariffs on imports which protects the cane market from imports as much as possible does it work for canadians um I mean, I, I think we need a supply management program in Canada, but the one we have right now is is showing signs of limitations, I think. It needs to be improved uh, in an open context. So we're actually allowing more milk uh, into our country. I've always believed, Ben, that we have so much to offer the rest of the world. Uh, we are allowing more milk inside, but why not start? Uh, why not set a quota system for exports as well? Eventually, we saw what happened with the baby formula situation a few weeks ago. Why not get into that game? Uh, we we're not well. We have one Kingston-based um, baby uh, baby formula plant, but all of that production goes to China. So you can see that we've never been strategic about. The dairy sector and i think it's high time that we do that but letting go of the quota system in canada honestly would be a mistake because american farms are much more efficient right now and you could actually see the disappearance of the dairy sector in canada almost overnight you did mention though that dairy farmers threw away almost nine million liters of milk yes. last year um how, how does that jibe with what we're seeing in terms of prices for uh, in our grocery stores well, right now, dairy farmers are doing it because they want to maintain higher prices. They don't want to say we've produ- we've overproduced, so therefore uh, prices should drop. That's and that's the make that's that's the political part of supply management that nobody likes. Okay, and that ne- we need to get rid of that. What do we do with the nine million uh, liters? We should have actually created a strategic reserves. We actually have a strategic reserve for butter for cheese in Canada. So why not actually use that reserve much more effectively? Uh, all right, all we do right now is that boards call farmers and say, you, you know what, you need to dump milk because we've produced too much. And, and that's just not acceptable. And most Canadians don't even know that. Um, so today we're expecting some new numbers tomorrow. Uh, what are we seeing with inflation in food this, these days? Usually the summer gives us a bit of a reprieve. Are we seeing it this year? Uh, I don't think we're – so the numbers we'll get tomorrow is for the month of May. In the U.S., we saw uh, a food inflation rate of uh, above 12% at the grocery store. That's a bad sign. We are expecting a record-breaking uh, food inflation rate at the grocery store tomorrow, unfortunately. And so it'll be scary for sure. But I think it's only validating what people are actually seeing right now at the grocery store. Um 
I think we'll peak probably in Q3 this year. Uh, probably by September, we, 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 uh, we would have seen the worst of it. Things will calm down probably in the fall, not, not this summer, unfortunately, because of, of Ukraine and everything else happening right now. So where are we seeing the continued increases? Because often the price of produce comes down a bit in the summer, but where are we seeing the ongoing pressures then? Uh, the ongoing pressures really is is related to bakery, dairy, of course. Uh, meat products are still going up. The center of the store also is seeing a lot of pressure. Uh, so there's, there's there are no section of the grocery store immune to what's happening right now. So the price of milk we know will be going up in uh, September once again, uh, but not as bad as it could have been. And the price of everything else still on the rise. Sylvain Charlebois, thank you so much for your time tonight. All right. Take care, Ben. Well, some stunning details emerged today from the ongoing inquiry into the mass shooting in Nova Scotia in 2020. The commission is investigating that April 2020 rampage that claimed the lives of 22 people. Today, it released a report on the way the Mounties and the government, the federal government, communicated with the public about the tragedy. And within it, accusations that RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky leaned on the local RCMP to discuss the weapons used by the gunman. And in this documentation, it said to further the Liberal government's gun control legislation ambitions. According to the notes of Superintendent Darren Campbell, he was reprimanded by the commissioner about 10 days later after the shooting. And it said because she had, or he said because she had, quote, promised the Minister of Public Safety and the Prime Minister's office, close quote, that the RCMP would disclose specifics about the type of firearms used by the gunman. Campbell writes, quote, the commissioner accused us of disrespecting her by not following her instructions. I was and remain confused over this. I said we couldn't do so because it would jeopardize ongoing efforts to advance the U.S. side of the case, as well as the Canadian components of the investigation. Those are the facts and I stand by them. Well, in a statement late today, Commissioner Lucky says as a police officer and the RCMP commissioner, I would never take actions or decisions that could jeopardize an investigation. I did not interfere in the ongoing investigations into the largest mass shooting in Canadian history. Well, you can imagine when this information surfaced, it caused quite the firestorm in the House of Commons today. Opposition MPs accused the government of interfering in a criminal investigation for political purposes. Here's Conservative MP Stephen Ellis, followed by then Public Safety Minister and now Minister of Emergency Preparedness, Bill Blair. This government continues to interfere with democratic process. The SNC-Lavalin scandal, and now we see, based on the Mass Casualty Commission, that the public's then public safety minister and the prime minister put pressure on Commissioner Lucky. Why did the prime minister and the public safety minister use the death of Canadians to advance their political agenda? I'm very happy to advise this House that this issue has already been dealt and, and with the Mass Casualty Commission, in which the commissioner of the RCMP has confirmed for the commission that no such direction or pressure was ever exerted by me or by any other member of this government. Uh, that was MP Stephen Ellis, Conservative MP, and uh, Public Emergency Preparedness, Preparedness Minister Bill Blair, formerly the Public Safety Minister. Well, joining me now to look into this, because it is quite the allegation, is Gary Clement. He's a 30-year veteran of the RCMP, retired now. He's a former head of the Forces Proceeds of Crime Unit, a former police chief in Coburg, Ontario, and now president and CEO of Clement Advisory Group. Thanks for your time tonight. Quite the story. I appreciate it, Ben. Yes, I agree with you, uh, a little astounding to say the least. 
So just in a nutshell, from what I can read just through this, is this is essentially uh, someone on the ground, a superintendent in Nova Scotia, saying uh, that they were sort of told unequivocally to talk about the weapons used in this horrific crime uh, to further the federal government's uh, policies on guns. Yeah, and, and let's put the whole thing into perspective here. We've got a commissioner that appears from what what has come out that was directing based on what she heard from Minister Blair, uh, to get her people on the ground to uh, push an agenda for the current government. First of all, uh, what caught me by surprise, Minister Blair was a former chief of police. He, uh, very much like I did when I was chief, we we reported to a police service board. Police service board has authority over administrative matters and find your budget, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to operation, it has to be unfettered and it's at the discretion of the chief of police. What we're seeing here is a minister that ought to have known better directing the commissioner, the commissioner who ought to have known better, now directing her people on the ground and not in a polite way, in a, from what I gather, a very vicious way to get, push the agenda of this current government. And I I think if I've ever seen a case in my lifetime of where both the commissioner and the minister should resign. I think this is a calls for it in spades. Gary, it'll come as no surprise to you, of course, that Brenda Lucky late today uh, said that she as commissioner would never take actions or decisions that would jeopardize an investigation. She did not interfere. Uh, Bill Blair said the same thing in the House of Commons today. Does does that ring true to you? Is the, or, or knowing the RCMP the way you know it, what could have happened here? Well, first of all, the superintendent that uh, spoke out, um, I have a lot of faith in what he said. He had no reason to lie. And I I can tell you his veracity shone through. He was the only one that actually got uh, before the press that actually sounded credible after this horrific event. Um, And this is, you know, I think this is just untenable for even the Canadian society to allow this to happen. We expect that uh, a chief of police or the, in this case, the commissioner to be objectively and to ensure the integrity of criminal investigations are held to the highest standard. And I, I have no doubt based on the testimony, there is no way a superintendent would have gone in and misled this inquiry or made misstatements. And I think it's very unfortunate this has happened. And I just think it's extremely embarrassing, uh, not only for the uh, uh, individuals in, on the East Coast, but for this country to have an incident like this happen. And now people are very much like what we're seeing in the U.S., where Trump is ducking for cover. We're seeing the same thing in Canada. One thing that's become crystal clear, uh, especially today, but throughout this inquiry, is that there were some real tensions here between Ottawa and what was happening on the ground in Nova Scotia. Uh, why would that be? What, what do you think was going on behind the scenes uh, that, that would have had, you know, the commissioner in Ottawa, as well as uh, uh, Minister Blair at the time, making comments or granting interviews about what was happening that contradicted what what the force in Halifax was willing or able to say at that point? Well, and I think that's the part that really, uh, you know, those are questions that begs to be answered, to be quite honest with you, Ben. It, it amazes me that the, uh, the commissioner and the minister would, you know, get involved other than to say this is a tragic event and, and it's being investigated to the fullest extent of the law. That's about as far as it should have gone. 
because you do have to uh, re uh, respect the integrity of the investigation. Um, as you felt well know, because you were covering it when unfortunately I had the unfortunate incident in Coburg, we, we left the operation. We never spoke of it, and, and nor should you. I mean, you have to respect the integrity. And I think what we're seeing here is that that was lost somewhere in political speak, I guess is the only way to describe it. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's really disheartening to think they'd push a gun agenda, um, especially uh, Minister Blair knows full well that, uh, you know, it's not legal guns we've got to worry about in this country. The chiefs of police, the Canadian chiefs of police, have spoken very clearly on this subject. Um, I, I'm surprised at him because I can tell you I sat on uh, the organized crime committee with him, Ben, and uh, it, it's definitely somewhere along the line he's forgotten what uh, he stood for. So you really think this was politics? This was this was this was a, a, a horrific tragedy unfolding in Nova Scotia, and and at some point someone got involved politically. There's no doubt in my mind this was politics. So all you do is have to look at the uh, very unfortunate briefings that were done by senior command at the outset. They stumbled all the way through it, uh, which now uh, hearing what I've heard today probably explains why they did stumble through it. They were trying to. I guess, skate around the direction coming out of Ottawa. And then you've got a, a superintendent who I've got 100% uh, faith in, came forward and, and sort of explained the lay of the land. So, you know, I, I'm sorry, this is just not acceptable behavior on the part of either the commissioner or the minister. And I think it really sends a very poor message uh, uh, to the whole police community, but to, I feel sorry for the unfortunate victims and the the remaining family members, because it sure doesn't show professionalism to turn this into something that would uh, push a, uh, an agenda. Uh, I think is shameful. I'm speaking with Gary Clement. He's a 30 year veteran of the RCMP, a former head of the forces proceeds of crime unit. He's now the president and CEO of the Clement Advisory Group. We're talking about revelations today in uh, personal notes that were released from a superintendent in Nova Scotia in the moments of the days after or the time just after that horrific mass shooting uh, that showed, at least according to him, that there was pressure coming down uh, from Ottawa to discuss the, the weapons used in that attack uh, in order because allegedly the the federal government was looking to uh, to advance a, a gun law agenda or something you know, legislation that they were working on uh, this was certainly a revelation both uh, the minister at the time who's uh, Bill Blair uh, who was the minister of public safety at the time now the minister of emergency preparedness denies this he denied it in the house today uh, the RCMP commissioner Brenda Lucky also says that she did not interfere in this investigation but certainly a lot of questions coming out of this when we come back we'll talk a bit more just about uh, the impact on the force as a whole, because if you see these incidents happening in one place, of course, it always leads you to suspect it might be happening somewhere else as well. We'll be back with that. I'm speaking with Gary Clement. He's a 30-year veteran of the RCMP, the former head of the Forces Proceeds of Crime Unit, a former chief of police in Coburg, Ontario, uh, now the chief anti-money laundering officer for Versa, for Versa Bank and president and CEO of the Clement Advisor Group. We're talking about revelations today uh, that, according to at least to a superintendent in uh, Nova Scotia with the RCMP, that there was political interference from Ottawa. There was interference, period, from Ottawa on the days after uh, that horrific mass shooting um, that would have... Uh, tried to advance, at least on the heels of this, uh, looking to advance the Liberals' uh, gun agenda or gun legislation agenda. Uh, Gary, when the rest of the force sees a story like this emerge, 
um, whether or not there are denials, what the truth really is, I guess we, we will we will attempt to find out. Uh, but what kind of impact does this have on an RCMP that was already really suffering through what had happened, uh, at least in terms of public opinion, in, in Nova Scotia? Well, I think for the members, at least the members that are still, you know, on the East Coast and um, obviously, they, you know, I, I would suggest the, the faith in their leadership has probably dwindled immensely. And that's a shame. The RCMP is, um, you know, uh, let's be honest. Uh, the, I think if we draw an analogy, you look at what happened uh, in the Cullen Commission. He came out very strongly on the poor performance of the RCMP. And I, I don't think there's any denying that. And then you look at the um minister's letter that was given to the commissioner on what her mandate uh, is supposed to be for the next year. Um, you know, I thought uh, she was, a, uh, you know, like a chief of police, that she had a police role, but reading that mandate letter somewhere along the line, operations got dropped right off. And, uh, you know, I think that's why we've become, uh, you know, an unfortunate uh, sideline or, or laughingstock. And when it comes to things like organized crime and money laundering, which we know are in deplorable shape from an enforcement point of view in this country. So we draw it all back. We've got to get the RCMP back on track, uh, whether that means, uh, you know, dividing up some of the duties, taking them away. But there has to we've got to have accountability and we have to have people in there that has an operational bent and an operational focus and focuses on what this country needs. And that's we've got to get a handle on the organized crime problem in this uh, country that the gun coming across the border we got to get a handle on that and then the extensive money laundering i mean we've become the uh, focal point for transshipment organized or transnational organized crime those are the things that you would think and uh, that these governments should be focusing on when it comes to the rcmp uh trying to pass an agenda on guns that really are going to solve nothing um other than to actually I guess, distance themselves from a certain group of people that, and, and just so you understand, I, I don't have a, a revolver or anything. I was glad to give it up when I left, but I don't have a problem with people having them for legitimate purposes, taking to the range and nor should anybody. It's not those guns that we got to worry about. Larry, just in your experience, how much does politics filter through the top echelons of the RCMP? I mean, you know what it's like at headquarters. Uh, how much does politics filter through and, and how do you how do you exercise it? How do you get it out of there if the RCMP is going to rehabilitate or find its feet again? Well, I think the only way to do it, it should be a, um, very much like it is in a municipality. It should be a, a, a police service board made up of not just politicians. We and they've got to they've got to have that uh, Chinese firewall between you know the administrative side, the budgets, et cetera, which definitely they have to have control of as far as setting it for the year. But the commissioner has to be operationally focused, or if they're going to remain uh, you know politicized to the nth degree, and then the two deputies or number of deputies they have have to be operational. And unfortunately, what's happened, and I saw it in my time in headquarters, because everybody was aspiring for that next rank, it became politicized from the inspector up and everybody was playing politics. No police work was ever being done. And that's where the forces has started to lose uh, sight of what its mens rea is. 
And I, I really believe we've got to get a con control of this. And politicians have to realize that uh, having a national police force that is effective in uh, carrying out their duties, especially in the area of, of our organized crime and, and uh, sponsoring or working with our allies uh, in doing these uh, multi-international type investigations, that's what they should be focusing on and be proud of. Um, unfortunately, I can tell you, and I traveled, as you know, and uh, a couple of years ago, I was traveling extensively in the U.S. and meeting with not only law enforcement, but a, a lot of other uh, financial institutions, very senior levels, not only in the U.S., but in the U.K. We were a laughing stock. And for me, that's very disheartening. I'm still proud ex-member of the RCMP. I think they're, the members that are there, there's some very talented members. They're just not being used appropriately, and politics is winning the day. Gary Clement, thank you so much for your insight tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. Well, last night we brought you the story of Daniel Lintz. We spoke to his father, Derek. Uh, Danny was a 17-year-old from a small town in Manitoba, population about 600. Uh, back in February, he received a message on social media and it very quickly went very wrong. He was uh, encouraged or coerced into providing uh, explicit images. He was then blackmailed almost immediately. Uh, within three hours, he had taken his own life after falling victim to that aggressive sextortion scheme. Here's how his dad expressed it to us last night. He received a message from somebody, you know, claiming to be a young woman. They ended up sending uh, explicit pictures and within minutes he was being extorted. And, uh, you know, three hours after that, he had died. That was Derek Lintz last night in our interview. Uh, it's an awful reminder that even as awareness grows of the dangers online, of the predators that exist online, that there are some that there are many that are still very vulnerable to uh, to these tactics. Few know that better than my next guest. In October 2012, Carol Todd's daughter Amanda took her own life by suicide after being the victim of cyber abuse and sextortion as well. The trial of the man accused of being her, her tormentor is ongoing in British Columbia these days. Carol has taken a stand. She shared Amanda's story, much as Derek did with us last night. She shared it around the world. She's a global advocate now for increasing awareness of bullying, cyber abuse, internet safety, mental health, and more recently, gender-based cyber violence. Carol Todd is also the head of the Amanda Todd Legacy Society, and she joins me now. Carol, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for inviting me, Ben. I thought of you immediately while speaking to, to Derek Lins last night, just because it's it's something that you know so well. And, and I guess it, it, it seems, you know, a decade later that the work still needs to be done to raise awareness for teens out there and, and those out there willing to wishing to do harm simply change their tactics as they go on. Oh, definitely. And with the advent of how complicated and um, advanced technology is, is getting, um, it, it's ever present. Like I've seen um, Twitter messages and, and alerts from the RCMP and from cyber tips and from um, NICMIC, which is our equivalent of the Canadian Centre for Child Protection on sextortion. And more boys are being targeted right now for whatever reason, right? Yeah, I, I guess perhaps they're just they're vulnerable. I suppose not expecting to be to be coerced that way or, or trapped that way. I would imagine. And I, I totally agree with you. And, and 
um, everyone has thought it just happens to, to girls, but it's happening to boys. But we have to just look at teenagers and youth um, and, and the brain development and their sexual development and, and all that. And there's curiosity and, and there's a vulnerability that um, our kids don't feel that being online, like that it's safe, that it's still safe talking to a person and, and sharing images or, or sharing personal information um, to someone that they don't really know. They, because that person is not, you know, at their doorstep, they think it's okay, and, but it's not okay as um, my family has learned, right? Yeah, one of the things that was that was interesting last night speaking to uh, to Danny's father was that he really and I think people have taken inspiration from you in this that as as awful as it is and as tragic as it is and it is difficult as it is he really felt the need to talk so that other parents would know. And I can't imagine how tough that is but you know how tough that is. I do and 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 one of the things is sharing your story because I believe that other families and, and youth, we're in a society where we see reality shows and, and we see true crime shows, right? So sharing real-life stories brings it to a place where this can really happen. And, you know, I've heard so many families go, well, I've talked to my child, it's never going to happen to us because I've had that conversation. Well, you have to have to keep having that conversation because in a heartbeat, someone can fall down that rabbit hole and, and not just youth, right? There's, there's adults who are being sex sorted too. Um, and, and that's the awareness out there. We have to keep talking and educating. Um, our, our teachers have to keep talking. Our parents have to keep talking. Our, our law enforcement, our community leaders need to keep talking about it. We have to normalize the conversation now about what sextortion is, what exploitation is, how easy it can happen. And more importantly, what to do if it is happening? Because I, I imagine, as, as you and you've heard, I've heard you talk about this, that it is the shame and the fear that they prey on. Yes. It, it's the the predators out there. They say that within within five minutes, a, a predator knows if uh, a young person is vulnerable, and either keeps talking to them or just leaves leaves that conversation. Right. Um, and, and it's so important to talk to our kids about, you know, if, if something if someone's asking you for images or if you've sent an image um, to tell an adult, because brain development and kids, they, it's really hard for them to problem solve adult type problems and, and extortion, exploitation are adult type problems. Right. And so the shame, the judgment, that's what that's what our young people, and that's what Amanda was afraid of was. Um, that she would get in trouble and that um, we already know that she was shamed and she was judged when it went out there. Um, but we have to have that conversation that we can't shame and we can't judge because if we want to stop this, um, I, I liken it to if, if you have an injury, if you sprain your ankle um, and you're a kid, your parents aren't going to know that you're maybe not an ankle isn't the right one. Um, but your parents are going to know you have an injury unless you tell them, and then they can get mm-hmm. you to a doctor, right? And so with exploitation and sextortion and, and what happens online, even bullying and cyberbullying, no one's going to know unless you tell them, right? Or, or your child talks to you, but your child won't come and talk to you 
if you're going to threaten to take away their devices or um, they're going to get grounded. You have to have that trust in that communication in order for that prevention to happen. I know one thing that I was at talking to um, to Daniel's father about last night was just the idea. They have no idea who this was. They have no idea who did this, um, who could have caused this indirectly or directly. Uh, I yeah. know that someone is standing trial in Amanda's case now. He's pleaded not guilty. But is there any satisfaction in, in the idea that perhaps justice can be done? Is Does that bring any relief or is it just just another step? Um. If you Google Amanda Todd trial, you'll find out all the things that um, have occurred with this trial and things that have happened in the past. That's all I can mm-hmm. say right now. Yeah, um, no, I agree. It's but, still going but on. It, yeah. But, but it, it does bring me some peace, sort of, that he was found and that there is obviously some evidence linking him to Amanda. And so we hope that there's a positive ending. that believed in Amanda's story that, um, and have given support that justice can be served. I, I really think that this is precedent-setting in, in our country, that um, someone was extradited for um, what, what they may have done to Amanda, because this has never been done before, right, in, in terms yeah. of um, sextortion exploitation. So it will set precedents in our legal system for hopefully finding predators and um, convicting them. Yeah, I get a reminder that he's pleaded not guilty in this trial. Um, the the I, I guess what I was thinking is that for so many parents who, who suffer these awful tragedies, they have no way, they don't know what happened. They don't know even who did it. And it must be, it must be devastating just to be left with that void and have no idea who was responsible. It is. And, and you know, I felt the same way because um, Aiden Caban wasn't arrested until 2014, and Amanda died in 2012, and she was victimized in 2010. So it was it was a long wait, and, and when she died by suicide, I just thought, you know what, we're never gonna we're never gonna find it and sort of put it behind me in in that respect. And then in 2014, getting a call from the RCMP that there was a a fellow that has been charged right in the Netherlands, and so. It brought a new chapter on. Um, but I want to say that if, if, you know, any young person out there or parents, um, if, if there's some exploitation happening, some sextortion happening, call your local police department, the RCMP in Canada, call cybertips.ca and, and make a report um, because we have to do something and, and we can't stay silent. And we know that mental health, you know, falls into play, and we, we can't, we don't want to lose any more young people to um, this. Well, Carol, thank you as always for speaking out. I think you've uh, given a lot of other parents the strength to do the same. So, thank you. And, and my heart goes out to the Lint family, right? And, yes. and I've, I've yeah. been in touch with mom and dad. So, okay. um, Great. so that, you know, I guess, well, yeah. Thank you so much again for sharing, for sharing again, for sharing Amanda's story and for sharing some advice with uh, parents and teens out there, a, a message that never can be told enough. Thanks, Ben.
We're talking this half hour about a story we first talked about last night, which is sextortion of teenage boys, a growing problem in this country. Um, and while there are resources out there for teens who fall prey to this, often they don't turn to them. Police agencies, agencies around the world have been sending out urgent warnings about sextortion against boys. Uh, organized crime rings, again, based overseas, poses young women on social media platforms uh, that teenagers use, like Snapchat and Instagram. They reach out to those teens, give them attention. They take advantage of uh, their de level of development, impulsiveness, and quickly, quickly, as we found out with the case of uh, Danny Lintz, it can all go very badly, very quickly. Then the threats begin and so forth. It's very aggressive, not particularly sophisticated, but certainly relentless. Well, joining me now with more is Stephen Sauer. He's the director of CyberTip.ca at the Canadian Centre for Child Protection. Thank you for your time tonight. Good evening, Ben. Thanks. I, I, I don't know if many of my our listeners would be aware that teenage boys have now become the principal target here in these extortion uh, schemes, but that's what you're seeing. What's behind it, do you think? Absolutely. I think, you know, there, there's a vulnerability here for teenage boys in this space. Um, you know, a lot of these crimes that we're seeing come in through the tip line um, being reported to us and through our other mechanisms for reaching out to us. Uh, what we're seeing is that, that youth... Uh, tragically go through this pretty quickly. You know, you, they're approached by an individual. They think it's a similar age peer. Um, they're, co they're coerced. They're tricked into sending a nude image or undressing on a live stream. And then uh, almost immediately the threats begin. Uh, these individuals know the vulnerabilities that these kids face and they understand how to pressure them and how to uh, get them to comply with their requests for money. How does it work? I mean, it sounds both, you know, diabolically simple and yet and yet very, very well orchestrated. Yeah, you know, there are so many different techniques out there in terms of pressuring, but typically the approaches that we're seeing happen through uh, platforms like Instagram or Snapchat where youth have accounts, They've, they are obviously sharing information about themselves on these accounts and uh, these these. Uh, you know, attackers, these extorters are essentially, uh, you know, harvesting the information about these individuals and contacting youth on a regular basis. So, you know, it's pretty simple. They, they, they reach out, they may send a, an instant message, a direct message to the youth through one of those platforms. Um, and then they, they begin to have a conversation with them. They tr start to pressure them into sending nude images. They're pretty relentless, um, you know, and often if they don't comply um, if the youth decides that it's it's you know they don't have the money or they you know they they aren't willing to uh, to comply with the demands, uh, you know the, these extorters are uh, very very aggressive and it's hard to get away from them. You know they often talk about the fact that this is a job for them and that they're out there to ruin kids' lives. What do kids need to know then? What do kids and parents need to know about these situations? Because it feels like it plays into something that is kind of common for, for teenagers to get involved in, in in some ways, especially older ones. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that we talk to families about is is the fact that this is this is just a form of online sexual violence. So we certainly see this through a number of mechanisms. But you know, having the conversation with your kid about uh, the pressure tactics that are used, um, how quickly things can unravel if a new image is sent. Um, and, you know, the other thing, too, is we want kids to understand that it's not their fault that this stuff happens. You know, that these people are out there targeting them because they are vulnerable to this. 
Um, and, you know, in some cases, we see situations where the kids haven't even sent a nude image, um, but a picture of them has been sent with their face, and that face is then photoshopped onto a nude image, and the threats begin from there because they say that they're going to distribute this, this uh, photoshopped image instead of an actual image if they don't comply and provide more imagery or uh, pay up. Uh, do we know who these people are? Well, there's, you know, it seems to us and, and from the information that we have, um, that there's a number of individuals internationally who are engaged in this, you know, they're, they're from various jurisdictions around the world. And we don't have a lot of detail on what that looks like. But what we've heard from law enforcement is that they seem to be organized, they seem to be orchestrated in their, uh, in their activities um, from areas like um, Africa and Southeast Asia that are engaged in this and, and really have a good understanding of, of how to, the tactics that, uh, the, and the approaches that work. Um, and it's, you know, it's evolved over time in terms of the tactics. We see um, changes in, in those tactics on an ongoing basis. Is there enough being done to fight it? And if, if not, who isn't, who isn't doing enough? Yeah, I think there's a number of gaps here that have left children, uh, you know, helpless in these cases and, and families helpless in these cases. Um, obviously, you know, at the ground level, police don't necessarily have the resources to investigate this, especially on the local level. Um, it, you know, it requires some coordination by governments, by police, in the, you know, on a in national and international level. And we're starting to see some of that, which is great news. But the other aspect that is not talked about a lot is the fact that the tech companies that are involved in this, you know, you talk about the Snapchats, the Instagrams, they have the information, they have all the data, they have the ability to get out in front of this. What could they be doing? Well, certainly knowing their users, um, you know, we know that these companies already know who we are. They serve up, uh, you know, targeted advertising to all of us. And yet, you know, now they pretend that they don't know enough about who's doing this. They allow fake accounts to be created over and over again. Um, we've seen situations where the same profile image of a young female is used across, you know, 20 or 30 different accounts. And, uh, you know, that, that could be an easy way of, of targeting this is looking for similarities um, that really they have all the information they should be doing more in this space. And as far as I can tell, it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter if you live in a rural community in Manitoba, as was the case with, with Danny Lintz. It doesn't matter if you live in a big city. Everyone is, everyone is vulnerable here. Absolutely. They're, you know, they're not really targeting so much based on a specific jurisdiction or location. What they're looking at is you know, the individuals, youth from North America, they believe if they have the money you know, to target them and they have this vulnerability. Um, they're often engaged in social media uh, a lot more than maybe other youth worldwide. And so they, this, is, this is really their target audience. And, and like you said, it doesn't really matter where you come from. Um, you could be, uh, you know, unfortunately extorted by these individuals. So what advice do you have then for any teen out there, any parent who becomes aware of a teen who's gotten one of these messages, whether they comply or not? As you mentioned, it doesn't matter sometimes if they comply or not, the extortion begins. Yeah. What's your, what's your advice? Definitely our advice is, is first to stop all communication with that individual. Don't comply with the demands. If, if they've already complied, you know, it might make sense to connect um, with the, you know, a bank 
that where the, the transfer has been made um, to stop that transfer, um, but also report. So whether that's reporting to police or connecting uh, with cybertip.ca or connecting with us through our needhelpnow.ca website, um, those are good avenues to at least to try to get out ahead of this and, and we can help you through that. Stephen Sauer, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Valuable advice. Thank you for having me, Ben.